it's time for On the Couch with our resident psychologist, Jane Enter, exploring life and caring for our mental and spiritual well-being on Bay FM 99.9. Welcome to our regular On the Couch segment with resident psychologist, Jane Enter, based at First Light Healthcare, Byron Bay. Today, we take a close look at intimacy. Why do people struggle with it? And how can we nurture it to improve our overall happiness and well-being? Jane Enter has some insights. Good to speak to you again, Jane. Thank you, Fern. And of course, thank you for having me back yet again. Look, as social creatures, humans need personal relationships with others, of course. But just explain firstly what intimacy is, because it's often just thought of as meaning romance or sex, isn't it? Yes, and of course you can have sex without intimacy. Intimacy is an experience where someone feels safe to be vulnerable. They can say what they're feeling, they can expose their doubts and fears about themselves. They can talk from the heart about how they're truly feeling and feel safe enough to do so. That's intimacy. So intimacy isn't just about sex or being in a relationship. It can also occur in close friendships and parent-child relationships, siblings and, and so on. But why is intimacy important for our well-being, Jane? There's many thoughts on this. One of the thoughts is we only exist because another sees us. So our experience is only a shared and felt experience if someone else sees it and does it with us. So there's a sense of our existence really depending on the other, that we are interconnected and that experiences and life and our beings are richer and happier when we have intimacy in our lives. We journey through life. And if we have a co-compatriot on the journey or several, it is a much nicer affair for us. So it's important for our psychological well-being and overall satisfaction and happiness. Is there much research to, to prove this? So much. One of the biggest things about getting older that is a huge factor for physical and mental health is loneliness. So if someone is lonely, it will affect their physical, their mental, their entire health. Because we are social creatures, because we need each other, Mm. because we are wired neurologically, and I'm talking about neurotypical people, Other uh, non-neurotypical people have needs, but not in the same degree. We need others. And it it is a boost for us to have people in our life. Women need for their mental health, according to research, at least three social contacts outside the family a week where they can really talk to their girlfriends or family. And men, unfortunately, don't always nurture these things and are often, you know, when retirement or work ends, incredibly lonely and they decline. So this is why men especially have issues with intimacy? Yes, I think 
men are, you know, often culturally taught not to be vulnerable, not to show um, their sensitivity, not to talk about their failures, not to say how they truly feel. And so often they don't have the same level of intimacy. If you look at a group of women together often, there's incredible camaraderie and chat. And often with men, it's parallel playing, like kids, you know, you play golf together, Mm. you go and do something together, but you don't really talk about what's going on. Mm. And that's a severe problem because it means you're lonelier and life is harder. If men would have the same level and depth of friendships as women, they would find life a lot richer and easier. Mm. And that's not saying all men, by the way, um, don't have those friendships, but it's just more statistically noticed in men that they don't have those deeper intimate relationships in the same way that women do. I was going to say because I go between being gay I have many female friends and grew up with three sisters and I have a lot of male friends as well and there's no doubt that the conversations generally speaking are very different. Men talk about footy, about outside stuff, about politics, what's going on whereas with my female friends we can actually It's not an issue and it's so much easier to talk about how you're feeling, what's going on. I think you just said that beautifully, Fern, because you said we talk about outside things. And really intimacy is talking also about inside things. It's talking about the rich inner landscape of the heart and being able to talk from that place about life, about fears, about aging, relationships, problems. It's about being able to really share the places in which you're not confident, you're not secure, and know that the person that you're sharing it with will hold it with value and tenderness. And it starts when we're young, I guess. We tend to hear so much about finding yourself, especially when talking about young people, that we forget about the importance of finding others sometimes, don't we? Absolutely. And uh, if you think about something, the biggest learning you're ever going to get about yourself is in a relationship with another person. The other helps you find yourself. You find your boundaries. You find what annoys you. You find how you come across. You get feedback about who you are. You work out if it fits for you or not. It is through the relationship of intimacy with the other that we find ourselves. So is it true to say then, Jane, that the ultimate form of intimacy can only be reached or achieved with a partner or in a lifetime relationship? Because this can make people feel like they're a failure if they're single. Look, I think the world has changed so much. So number one, you're not a failure if you're single. You're not. You just haven't found the right person or maybe you don't actually want that kind of relationship. Number two, yes, intimacy is really um, something that grows over time with the right person, but that doesn't mean it has to be your partner. You have childhood friends that went to school together, that went to university together, that got married, that had children. Their level of intimacy and what they share, if they have an intimate friendship, is as deep as a couple in many ways. Why a couple is often seen as the ultimate intimate relationship is because when you get to know somebody one-on-one over 40 years, the bad bits, the shadow side, the good bits, 
when you look at them and think, oh my God, what am I doing with you? And then you wake up on other days and think, oh, I'm glad I'm with you. That's the ebb and flow of human relationships. And when people have spent substantial amounts of time together, they have this wonderful shared history. Mm. And history and shared experience, if talked about and felt together, form the basis of a really loving and lasting intimacy. So, of course, we can also have that with siblings, with other loved ones and very close friends that you grew up with or have known for many, many years. So what are those key elements of intimacy? Obviously, openness and trust are very important. I think the key element, above all, is being able to be vulnerable with that person and know that you will be accepted and safe for whatever you bring into the conversation and that they will genuinely and caringly give you honest feedback in a way that you can hear and a way that is palatable for you. Honesty without compassion is cruelty. And without judgment, of course. Intimacy isn't a a trait. It's a a dynamic thing that's essentially learnt, isn't it? Who are the people who struggle most with intimacy? We mentioned men. People who've been traumatised. People who grew up where the people that they were supposed to get love, safety, protection from, instead they got something traumatic. Fear and are confused by intimacy because, of course, they desperately want to feel safe and secure and have an intimate relationship, but the very thing they want has been the source of terrible pain for them. So those people really struggle to truly trust because their trust has been so profoundly betrayed. Other people who struggle with intimacy are people who have very uh, vulnerable selves where they they fear that they're going to be annihilated or criticised or that there will be an empathic failure which they don't feel strong enough to manage. Other people uh, who've been burned in relationships, you know, you often hear, I'm never going to fall in love again after the end of a bad relationship. And thank God for short-term memories and the willingness of hope in the human heart, because often people, of course, do go on to have other relationships. But I think, you know, it's really people who've been really profoundly hurt at a young age who find it the most difficult to be intimate. Mm. And I asked you whether the ultimate form of intimacy is in a partnered relationship. But of course, there are many people in long-term relationships and married who struggle as well with intimacy. Tell us about that. There are couples who do not talk. There are couples who function together like a contract. You know, they they do the household tasks, they do the money, they do the work, they do the parenting, but they actually don't really open up and talk. And emotional intimacy in a relationship is often a much longed for missing element when couples come to couple therapy. And how common is that? Very, very common. People come to therapy when often several critical times in relationship. Often, you know, in the first seven years when they think, oh, my God, I've married the wrong person or I've partnered with the wrong person, 
Then when they have children, because the stresses of having children, no one can prepare you for. Then when children hit adolescence, because that is trial by fire for most parents. And then as the children are getting ready to leave the nest, there's a looking and thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to spend the rest of my life with you. I do not think I can do it or I can only do it if. So I think all couples need to recalibrate and revisit their relationship regularly to review because what you want when you first get together isn't what you want seven years later isn't what you want 14 years later and so being able to have those ongoing dynamic conversations which address the changing needs and growth of the individuals in the relationship Mm -hmm. is hugely important. So intimacy usually doesn't happen in a flash. It's um, over time. It's got to be built and it, it doesn't always come easy to some people, obviously. No, some people really find um, talking about emotional things and their own vulnerabilities really difficult. They feel too exposed or they feel they're going to be judged, or they feel worse, they'll be rejected. So often they keep the bits of themselves which they don't think are okay to themselves because they're scared someone will say to them, actually, no, you're not okay. Mm -hmm. And so there's often a fear about being intimate because you think somebody will reject you. Tell us more about that fear. We've talked a bit about fear throughout this series, but fear of intimacy is a real thing. Tell us more about it during therapy in particular and what people say. Look, often when people come to therapy, they have what I call an intellectual defence. They're in their heads. They can tell you about an event as if it's happening to someone else. They're just not in it, but it's their life. And often they find it very difficult to enter into the experience of what's happened because they have to feel And they're worried if they feel and they show, you know, their fears, their their deep-seated self-loathing, their um, uncomfortableness with who they are, their uh, ugly bits, so to speak. They think they're going to get rejected or judged or pathologized or labeled. And in fact, it's those bits that bring us to therapy. It's those bits that we need someone to say, "Ah, actually, I understand you get angry, of course. How do you express it? And is that useful? I understand that you feel um, afraid sometimes. And given what you've been through, it's understandable. You're, You're scared of being hurt. It's bringing in the bits where you feel that they're not the best bits of you, the bits that have told lies or the bits that have hurt someone or the bits where you haven't been your your sort of best version of you. Those are the bits we all have. Mm. None of us are perfect. And being able to know, hey, I'm not alone, and to be accepted and worked with how to do things better for your own growth and well-being, that involves you bringing to therapy the bits you're not comfortable with. Parts of our shadow side. Yeah. You mentioned earlier isolation and loneliness. They're often the result for people who struggle to form close relationships and intimacy throughout their lives. How big a problem would you say this is today? Huge. You know, in 
cultures like Japan, they've got those um, children, the ghost children, I think they're called, who won't leave their room because they're happy with virtual reality. <laughs> they do not want the real thing. Then I see people who come to me who look like they've got everything and then they feel terribly lonely because they don't feel anyone truly understands them or knows how inadequate and ashamed they feel about who they are. Then there are older people who come to see me whose partners have died or they've got separated and they feel incredibly alone in their lives. Mm -hmm. So I think loneliness is, is there as a constant through whatever age group. And it's how to work with the loneliness and transform it into taking risks, seeking out relationships, seeking out the other, and actually learning to share. I remember once at the Buttery when I was running a group, one of the people there said the truth will set you free. In other words, if you can be honest about who you are and you're no longer frightened of who you are, that is such a gift because then it gives everyone else permission to also be honest about who they are. Once someone is vulnerable with you, you find it much easier to be vulnerable with them because you're no longer playing I've got it all together game. And how do you work with these people? You mentioned very briefly. Have you got other examples of where you work through the issue of intimacy with somebody who really struggles with it? Yes, I think the first thing is the therapeutic relationship. You know, it doesn't matter what model of therapy you use. In the end, it comes down to the relationship where if you trust your therapist, if your therapist gets you, there's an experience of being seen and understood and accepted and not judged and validated and appreciated and and it brings you to a place in yourself when you can then look at the bits of yourself you're not that comfortable with and have that understood and work with how to change bits that you might not like and how to do your life better. That's the first thing. So it's that relationship. And the experience of not being, you know, judged and, and the therapist looking shocked and going, oh, my God, you think that? That is often such a relief. And then once you've had the experience of opening up and your therapist helps you to practice that in your real life and you get good responses because generally when people are vulnerable, you do with the right people that you're vulnerable with, get great responses back. And in fact, they get vulnerable with you. So your relationships outside of therapy into new levels of openness and intimacy. So it's those sorts of beginning dynamics, practicing what you do in therapy, trying out things at home, sharing things that are important to you, being encouraged to open up. And having that met and understood in the therapeutic relationship. What sorts of changes have you seen in your work with people? Oh, so many. Often I see really um, disempowered people who are scared to ask for what they need, who are scared to say how they feel. And once they start doing it, they blossom and they feel better about who they are and they feel more comfortable in their own skin and their relationships grow and they hit new levels of intimacy and that's a positive feedback loop because the more they give and share, the more they get back and that reinforces the more giving and the more sharing. So I've seen tremendous changes in people and 
it's such a delight when that happens. You see people literally bloom. And for people who aren't in therapy, (laughs) what's your advice for how they can the steps they can take to work, start working through their fear of intimacy? I think the first thing is to try and have an intimate relationship with yourself. And what I mean by that is get to know yourself. Look inside and say, oh, I, I was dishonest there. Why was I dishonest? I was scared of hurting the other person's feelings. I wanted to avoid conflict. I didn't feel safe enough. I notice that I hide when this happens. I'm going to try and and be brave and have a bit of, you know, courage, heart strength, and put myself out there. Often when you ask people who've been in positions that they've held for a long time, like wife, mother, husband, father, they've forgotten their own independent individual needs. They've lost connection to self. And so taking that time to journal, write down for a month everything you think and feel of the day um, for half an hour each night and then read back over it because you'll reflect yourself back to yourself and you'll come to know yourself. Journaling is a wonderful way. The other thing is to think, well, how do I have an intimate relationship with myself? What food do I like? What music do I like? What movies do I like? What do I like to read? Remember what you like. Remember who you are. So you start to reconnect with yourself. And once you start to know a little bit more about who you are, then you feel more comfortable in and being a little bit more certain about that. And then you start to take little risks like, you know, I didn't really like that movie. I thought this, I thought that you start to allow yourself to have your own opinion more, to express yourself more and accept that not everyone's going to think or feel the same way as you, but that's okay. Mm. You are being you. And once you can do that and then share more about your emotional self, then the rest just flows naturally. So it starts with knowing thyself. Yes and a deeper connection with ourself that then will enable us to do that with others. Yes, we have to know ourselves a bit. Mm. And often that's scary because we, we're scared we won't find anything inside there or we're scared we're going to find, you know, Mr. Angry or, you know, Miss Conflict Avoidant or we're going to find parts of ourselves that we don't really want to look at. And if we can say, actually, that's part of me and that developed for a reason and it served me, but does it still serve me? Mm -hmm. And start to look at things that you like about yourself, things you want to change about yourself and learn to love you. And when I say that, people sort of go, what do you mean? You've got to love yourself. No, you have to value yourself. Mm. And you have to accept the bits you like and the bits you don't like because that's you. That's your unique, wonderful self. Mm. Jane, just say a few words about the different types of intimacy because it ranges from emotional, physical, intellectual, experiential and even spiritual. Look, emotional intimacy is obviously that, that intimacy you have where you can be honest about how you feel and what you really are 
experiencing inside of yourself. Intellectual intimacy is that relationship that you have with somebody where you just love each other's minds, where you can talk about a wide-ranging set of topics and you can open up about all sorts of ideas and there's a wonderful reciprocal feedback loop between you and the other person. Physical intimacy, hugging, touching, kissing, people you feel safe with. It's not always about sex. In fact, very little of it is about sex. It's that ability to to let somebody touch you and for you to touch them. Something really missed in COVID. People wanted to get hugged and missed touch a lot during COVID. And spiritual intimacy, <clears throat> it's that connection you have to the universe, to something being greater than you to our existence being more than the sum of our life on earth, that we are all connected. There's something about that interconnectedness, that intimacy with with the universe that is profoundly important for a lot of people. And often we can have those different sorts of intimacies with completely different people. Yes. I always say to couples, one person cannot provide every single thing Mm. you need. You need other people in your life. Couples need to retain their independent self and their couple self. And the independent self goes out into the world, talks to other people, meets new people, and brings those experiences back to the couple self. If it's only the couple self, God, it gets boring. Because often in relationships, especially very long-term ones, a lot of couples get lost in each other and lose themselves as an individual. They do. And often people say, I'm dying in this relationship. And what they're saying is, I've lost connection to me. Mm. I've become such a couple self, I've forgotten myself. And they have to find myself again. Mm. Jane, it's hard to imagine life without relationships. And a lot of research shows that it's fundamental for our overall mental health, as you've mentioned. What's your final message for people for whom intimacy doesn't come easy? Oh, this is a hard one. I'll tell you why, because I want to say take a risk. But I know for some people that risk is so fear-inspiring. I'd say do little forays. If you're frightened of intimacy or it doesn't come easily to you, find like-minded people. If you like chess, find a chess group. If you like salsa dancing, find that. Slowly take little steps into areas where there's commonality and just practice it. Because over time, it becomes more comfortable. Seek out in little safe bits, intimate connections that practice and teach you greater confidence in being intimate. Because the rewards are truly wonderful, aren't they? Look, when someone gets you and when you feel seen, it's like a weight drops off your shoulders. It's like you have this big breath out and think, oh, I'm not alone. Mm. And we're not wired to be alone. We are social creatures. And it's a safety net as well. You know you can go to these people for anything at any time. Yes, I just want to talk quickly about that one. We have 
circles in our life of levels of intimacy. So in your absolute go-to circle, the inner, inner circle, there might only be three or four people. These are the people you can ring at midnight, at one o'clock in the morning. They'll come and fetch you. They'll lend you money. They'll help you. Those are the people that no matter what, you know they will be there for you. But there's only a few of them, generally. Then there's the next circle. These are the people you can talk to, you can open up to. They're great friends, but they're not your absolute go-to in an emergency friend. And in that, you might have eight to ten people. Hmm, Five to six, actually. And then the next circle are people that you chat with, you have shared interests with, you have fun with, but you won't necessarily reveal your deepest emotional self. And then the next circle will people you just bump into and you know and you chit-chat, but there's nothing much else. And then there's the rest of the world. And people will come in and out of those circles in your life. Someone who's in the friend circle, intimate friend, will come into the go-to circle at times. And someone in the go-to circle might go to the, you know, just close friend circle. It changes through the lifespan. So there will be levels of intimacy throughout the layers of relationships in your life. And the most important thing is you've got your three or four go-to people. Mm. Always very open, honest and trustable. It's very hard not to be intimate with you, Jane. And uh, thank you so much for speaking to us once again. Thank you. (laughs) On our next On the Couch taking an in-depth look at bullying. What's it all about and what is the best way to deal with it? Hope you can join us then.